0: Hello
1: and welcome to EDI's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Coming up on today's episode, hosted as part of our COP26 Focus Week, ECIU analyst Jess Ralston provides a snapshot of the UK's green policy progress and outlines where policy gaps remain. The green lead for the Greater Manchester Local Enterprise Partnership, Steve Connor, explores how city regions are ramping up their climate plans. And we look at how the net zero transition is affecting the global market for metals and minerals with Boston Consulting Group's Konrad von Spansky. A very warm welcome to you all and thank you for choosing the ED podcast today. I'm Edie's senior reporter and podcast secretary, Sarah George, and I'm solo in the virtual podcast studio today. Um, Our content director, Luke Nichols, is busy finalising our newsletter for the week. So if you're subscribed, keep an eye out for that one in your inbox. And our content editor, Matt Mace, is taking some much deserved time off. As we've mentioned in the introduction to this episode, this is part of our COP26 Focus Week of Content and Events, which has been going on since Monday, that's September 6, 2021. Um, and this is hosted as part of our six-month-long Countdown to COP26 Festival, made possible by our headline partner, Virgin Media O2. Our partners for this week specifically are EY, Grosner, and the Woodland Trust. Over the past five days, we've interviewed more than 50 experts, We've hosted more than 1,000 of you at online events, and we've had more than 70,000 views across our website, so to say that it's busy would be an understatement, and it's great to see so many people joining this vital conversation. After that jam-packed five days, this episode gives us all a chance to reflect and take stock ahead of COP26, all of course while keeping our eye on the prize of a net zero, resource efficient, socially equitable world. I've got three exclusive interviews to bring you over the course of the next hour or so, each approaching the urgency of coordinated climate action at a different angle. So we're taking a national look, a local look and also a global look at this topic. Our first interview is with the Energy and Climate Change Intelligence Unit, a London-based non-profit with a mission to support more informed debate on energy and climate issues in the UK and to highlight the importance of action at a scale and pace that meets the demand of science. The ECIU are long-term friends of EDI and I must say I've missed going to their briefings in person over the past 18 months. So it was great to get some time in the diary with Jess Ralston, one of their analysts, and her primary focus is on the UK's domestic decarbonisation journey and how policy is helping that journey in some cases and hindering it in others. I've had several emails in the past few weeks asking, so where can I see a list of all the UK's green policies? Where can I track progress of all those bills, white papers and other documents? Um, And as far as I'm aware, no tool exists yet. Although we are increasingly getting news of tools that can measure the economic, climate and nature impacts of certain green policies, definitely saw one for the budget. But I hope that this interview with Jess will provide a good explainer of whether you are out of the loop on UK green policy at the moment or whether you've been keenly following along in recent months. We've got three guests to host in an hour. So let's crack on and play that interview with Jess in full. Hi, Jess. It's such a pleasure to have you um, on our
0: podcast today. How are you? Hi. Yeah, good. Thank you. Not too bad. What about yourself?
1: good but busy as we've just been saying it's a busy time for the, for the unit as well i'm presuming
0: yeah definitely it's been um it's been good because you can see lots of different parts of climate start to be talked about and debated a little bit more but um yeah busy to say the least of course um and yeah we're obviously here as part of
1: our countdown to cop 26 focus week and it's great to have you on um because i know you're doing everything um at the unit in terms of looking at domestic um, policy, I think. So we can talk a little bit about the, the international piece as well. But It would be good to start with the domestic policy, um, really. So we're speaking just as Parliament is preparing to officially return from summer recess um, Shortly before we went on recess, we had that warning from the CCC that several of the policy packages that are needed before the overarching net zero strategy um, are behind. Um, we've had a few, but the big outlier is the heat and building strategy. So I'm sure we can talk a little bit um, bit about that. But I guess broadly, what have you made on, of domestic policy progress this year? And what have you heard about, um, about the heat and building strategy at this moment? Sure.
0: So um, this year has been a big year for the UK domestic policy scene, um, and I say that because towards the end of last year we had the Prime Minister's 10-point plan which set out 10 points right across the board so it talked about offshore wind, it talked about hydrogen, CCS, and pretty much the whole sort of energy policy landscape um, and that really set the government up for a big year of climate action and um, that's what they are referring it as um, and obviously we're hosting COP this year so it's a big chance for the UK to show um, their green credentials and really show what they're planning on doing about getting to net zero. So it has been a pretty big year. Um, and yeah, so far we have seen a few strategies. We've seen the transport decarbonisation strategy, the industrial decarbonisation strategy, the hydrogen strategy. Uh, but as you mentioned, there are still a few that are outstanding, which we know are coming um, probably ahead of COP. So uh, the big ones there, are, as you said, the net zero strategy, which is the overarching um, plan basically. There's the net zero review, which is being run by Treasury, um, and that will likely talk about how the um, transition will be funded, who's going to pay for it, um, and what the distributional effects of that might be. Um, but yeah, as you as you mentioned, the heat and building strategy is a really big area as well. Um, and lots of people in the climate space have been waiting a very long time for this strategy. So um, we are expecting there to be some um, pretty big decisions made and some pretty big clues about how they expect to decarbonise homes and what that means for industry. Um, so yeah, within the, the heat strategy itself, um, and within that I mean gas boilers as well, which make up a significant proportion of homes. I think it's 85% or so of homes in the UK use gas boilers, so um, it will be a big decision to make. Um, and it's one that experts recognise is completely necessary for net zero. Um, at the end of the day, you know, if you want to reach net zero emissions, you can't have a grid that is uh, reliant on gas because that's a fossil fuel. So, um, there will need to be a switch uh, in some way away from fossil fuels, and I think I think actually lots of people are up for that. I think when they hear about the new technologies, um, things like heat pumps, things like hydrogen boilers, uh, they're quite excited by the fact that they're so new and innovative. Um, and you know, it's, it's something that is not widespread at the moment, not at all. But um, I think we'll really see rapid changes um, in our heating and in our homes over the next few years, and and Britain really has a chance to to be a leader and say, this is what we're going to do to, to transform our homes um, and really lay the gauntlet out for other countries to follow suit perhaps. So it's, it's definitely a big strategy. Um, and it's the first real time that we're going to be talking about um, people's lifestyles and homes themselves. Uh, so far, as many people will know, lots of the emissions reductions have come from the power sector. Um, and that's basically um, a, a decision that's been taken and it's not really influenced you and I, for example, because we don't know what's happening. Um, to the electricity system you know we just get electricity um, at the end of the line so it's the first big um, policy uh, strategy that will really impact people's lifestyles in their homes and I think um, it will take some communications to people to say um, this is what's happening and, and this is what we expect homes to look like uh, in five years time in 10 years time um, and out to 2050 but um, I'm excited for it. I think it's gonna really I think it'll be challenging for some people to to see those changes and understand how it might impact them. But um, it's going to make a massive dent on emissions tackling our homes because there's such a significant proportion, I think about a fifth of our emissions. Um, so it's, yeah, such a big uh, sector to tackle and also um, a real chance for the UK to push forward um, and create new industries and, and provide jobs all over the country as well.
1: And that's exactly what I was going to come on to, because as Ed, as a B two B title, we hear a lot about how industry um, is preparing for the for the strategy. So the the house builders and the um, housing associations and the retrofitters have all been considering this. But as you say, the thing that's been in the headlines is how people at home. Um, are going to be changing their lifestyles um, as as well. So we were expecting this strategy before summer. Um, there have been reports that there are disagreements about who should pay what um, and and when. And you mentioned some of the challenges of that communication um, here, but obviously this is part of what your organisation does. Um, so I'd love to hear how we can can, as industry, and as people that are seeing that the industry is ready, Um, emphasize the benefits of transitioning to net zero in these sectors that will be harder um, than electricity? Um, So MPs and and the general public?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, I definitely think it's it's important to mention in the first instance, um, how much people are backing net zero and how much they're backing action on climate change compared to just a few years ago. So um, I think the the figures are around 70% of people want bold action from the government um, to tackle climate change, um, and a a further sort of two-thirds think it should be prioritised as much as um, COVID has been um, as we move forward, because I think people see it as a real crisis, and all the extreme weather events, all um, all the natural disasters that we're seeing become more extreme and more common, um, that's really impacting people as well, and they think, uh, hang on, we're going to have to actually do something about this. Um, So I think you can't underestimate the public mandate for change. but yeah, I think that the industry will play a huge role in educating people. Um, for example, you've got uh, installers of energy efficiency and of heating, gas boiler installers uh, most of the time. They have a huge impact on the products that their customers pick. Um, and as, when the industry um, has that knowledge, you know that will filter down into the consumer as well. And so will family and friends and word of mouth. Um, you know if you see Bob and Jill up the street getting double glazing you sort of want double glazing as well and that's what I expect to happen um with heat pumps and low carbon heat they are going to be the next sort of big thing and that technology probably will become quite aspirational just like Tesla's have for electric vehicles that's quite an aspirational car to have and I think a smart home that has low heating um and like a solar system as well as a, um, a battery you know that's going to become quite aspirational and it is quite futuristic in a way um and I think as we move forwards, yeah, the industry will be able to train up installers, will be able to push out that knowledge. Um, but you've also got market um, driven uh, sort of levers as well. So um, all the adverts you see now on TV for cars are for electric cars or for hybrids. You don't see adverts anymore for just a normal petrol or diesel car. Um, and I think that's really telling of the times. And I would not be surprised if we start to see... Um, the the boiler manufacturers who are moving more into the low carbon heat space um i'm talking about people like worcester bosch um, and Baxi, and there's people like valent as well you know they're selling low carbon heating systems as well now and um, they're not just doing gas boilers anymore so i think we'll start to see them pushing these low carbon products um especially if a, a plan comes into place where boilers are being phased out within the next 10-15 years um just like with evs we'll start to see uh, low carbon heat being advertised and that's become um, the norm really and, and that's when you'll get the big boom in the market um, when people start to see and, and hear about these things on the street and in other people's houses. Um, I think that's really when the market will take off in the UK and and that's going to be brilliant for not just for jobs but also for our exports. Um, I know there's a couple of heat pump manufacturers in the UK at the moment. There's one up in Scotland and one down in Cornwall um, and that'll bring jobs to those areas but obviously the installers have to live all over the country so um, it's going to bring massive amounts of jobs as well. So, I think it'll be really positive for industry, and I think they'll
1: play a huge role in it. For sure. And you've come on to something there that I was going to mention. I presume that the jobs and skills will interest those who maybe, I, I don't know, the aspiration piece is great, but it does sound like it had been not really for people that are mainly on like gig economy jobs, um, for example, or low wage jobs. But that promise of skilling
0: up for the area and new opportunities might might ring true. Absolutely. And I think um, just the other day, the, the Heat Pump Association published the news that they're, um, they think they're capable of training 40,000 heat pump installers a year. And that's just one example of one industry of a few manufacturers. You know, that's not the whole industry. Um, so that obviously in itself is, is a massive amount of upskilling and um, not just with low carbon heat in homes, but you've got hydrogen, you've got CCS, you've got our offshore wind industry, which is obviously huge and also still growing. Um, so there really is going to be jobs in the green economy, which I, I think is a term that lots of people don't really understand and it's a bit um it's a bit hard to grasp what that actually is, but it's any job that um has any environmental benefit. Um so I think you know it's not just the engineers who are building the wind farms, but it's the, the people in the call centres who are helping out and the people who are doing all the admin and logistics. So the supply chains are gonna be even bigger than they are at the moment for offshore wind and for hydrogen and CCS. Um, and a lot of the time, you've got to remember these jobs um, are just strategically placed in areas that are, are ready for levelling up. Um, and by that, I mean places like the northeast and the northwest where there's already offshore wind um, industries simply because of their geography. Um, and that's where we'll start to see more energy jobs focused. And um, yeah, I think there can only be growth really in those industries we in the forward. Great. And that was going to come on to what I was going to talk about. So we've
1: talked there about the need for the UK to take leadership. Um, It's just been said so much um, over the past two years now. We've been waiting for this conference um, that this is a real opportunity, not only to get other countries to increase their climate commitments, but to show our own credentials, grow exports. Um, and and talk about skills. But I think at the moment, we're also looking um, as well at the optics of this and the opportunity and how we phrase that, which is what what we've been um, what we've been looking at. So I have my fingers crossed that everything you say will um, come about, because you mentioned the need for things like offshore wind um, up north. But we're talking at the moment as they're looking at Cambo and as they're looking at potentially um, 18 other projects. So I'd like to hear about what can be done to make sure that this gap between ambition and action is really plugged, that the opportunity of COP is seized without these these pitfalls being made. Um, I know that's a really complicated and broad question.
0: No, it's a, it's a great question. And um, it's definitely one that rings true with me. You know, you can't be a government that talks about being a world leader and um, forging ahead head on climate, if you're then going to turn around and approve fossil fuel projects, you know, that just doesn't add up. So it's it's a real big test this year of how seriously this government takes climate change. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, the Cambo oil field and there's the the coal in Whitehaven, coal mine in Whitehaven as well. Um, So there's a few different decisions which um, have been taken or will be taken soon, which will really reflect on the UK and its leadership on on climate. And ahead of COP26, um, we've had the Committee on Climate Change get involved and Lots of experts are turning around and saying you can't talk the talk and then not walk the walk. Um, so there will need to be decisions on this. Um, and that will really show um, show if the government is actually um, true to itself and true to its words um, or whether it, it was just sort of hot, hot words and hot air. Um, but yeah, I think COP26 won't just be um, a lever that could be used to, to forge the UK's place as a leader, but it could also be used to to help push on other countries, places like China, who often um, get cited as, you know, if China aren't doing it, what's the point of us doing it? Um, But when you break it down, China is such a huge economy that they're still one of the biggest investors in wind power and in solar, Um, even though they are still um, investing in coal, they're investing hugely in renewables as well. Um, And per capita, I think China have just slightly more um, emissions per year than the UK whereas uh, I think it's about I think we're on about five and they're on about seven um, seven tons of greenhouse gases per person per year but when you look at the US and Canada they're on 16 so um, I think sometimes you know this idea of what's the point if China aren't going to do it is a little bit um, it doesn't really make sense because if you add up all of the countries um, who have quite low emissions you know you're on about half of the emissions in the world so um, it's, it's not just about saying I'm not going to do it until they do it. It's about using our diplomacy and using our um, leadership to try and convince other countries that it not only makes sense environmentally, but it makes sense economically uh, to switch to net zero and to reduce our emissions. And I think that's something that will um, hopefully come out of COP. Um, I know there's a lot of talk about what's going to be covered as coal and it's um, cash and it's trees and things like that. But you really can't underestimate the power of getting everybody together in one room and really hashing out. who's going to do what and and what that means for the world um, in terms of climate change. So um, it'll be an interesting few months, to say the least. Um, I'm hopeful that we will see lots more action. Uh, The government said it was a year of action. We're yet to really see that. Um, And I know it's been been a hard year because of Covid and and everything that comes with that. But um, if they're serious about action on climate, they need to start probably showing it the full cop to be credible.
1: Thanks once again to Jess for that super useful snapshot of UK domestic policy. Um, Hopefully by the next time we meet, that infamous heat and building strategy will be out and maybe even, and I don't want to jinx it, um, but the results of the Treasury's net zero view and the overarching net zero strategy might be there too. So we've taken a look at the national angle there and a policy angle. Now we're going to go for a local business led angle. It's often been said that towns, cities and regions can move faster than nations, whether that's on climate or on other issues, um, and that when it comes to getting national targets hit, they are the engine rooms and the feet on the ground. More than 120 of the UK's top tier councils have made a climate emergency declaration, and most of this cohort has set net zero targets more ambitious than the 2050 national deadline. Among them is the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, which has a 2038 Net Zero vision. So to find out more about how these declarations and plans actually play out, we called the Local Enterprise Partnerships Green Lead, Steve Connor. So listen on if you're keen to find out about the innovations that are happening on the ground to get us to Net Zero, as well as how we can get them financed and how this approach could be adapted for your own local areas. Hi, Steve. It's a pleasure to have you on, on the podcast. How are you doing?
2: Yeah, good. Thanks. So really good, really good and lovely to uh, lovely to be with you.
1: You too. And I'm presuming, um, hence your job title, that you're dialing in from Manchester. Is it a sunny Manchester this Friday?
2: It's trying. There, <laughs> it's trying to break through and brighten all our lives. I think by, by the time the day's over, we'll have had a little shaft of sunshine making everything OK.
1: Okay, well, A a plus for effort. Um, and I, I think, um, I know that um, Edie and yourself have worked together on various bits and bobs, um, but I think it's your first time on on the podcast. Um, so for my benefit and the benefits of for the listeners, um, it'd be great to hear a little bit about yourself. Um, so what your focus areas are as the green lead for the local enterprise partnership, um, and also a little bit more about, um, yeah, how you came to be in that role.
2: Yes, yeah, sure, Sarah. Well, I, I joined the Greater Manchester LEp Local Enterprise Partnership uh, in April, um, very explicitly uh, with a, a desire to champion um, clean growth, green economy, um, climate emergency. Call it what you will, all those things sustainable. Um, so, I've been, and since then, um, I've been focusing very specifically on revitalising the programme to take all of the 125,000 businesses in Greater Manchester uh, on an accelerated path to net zero Um, because obviously we can't achieve our goals. We've got a science-based target for Greater Manchester of uh, net zero by 2038 and we can't do that unless we take business with us. So that's been my primary area of focus. Um, And then beyond that, my day job um, is I run a company in Greater Manchester called Creative Concern, which is a sustainability-focused communications company. Um, I've also recently chaired the Community Forest Trust, which is the parent charity of a number of community forests, and I chaired also Greater Manchester's uh, Climate Change Action Plan, so I've had a few different sustainability hats to wear over the years.
1: Great. And in terms of the partnership and the climate action plan, um, we've had a look really in how cities and regions can lead on decarbonisation. And we've we've spoken to people in Manchester about that 2038 target um, that, you, that you mentioned. Um, but I think something that's coming up increasingly is opportunities to lead now on not only climate mitigation, so the decarbonisation, um but adaptation and resilience um as well so i'd love to hear your thoughts about how cities and city regions can lead on that and i know you've sent me some notes about some really exciting projects in that space
2: yeah thanks sir i i think cities um, um the adaptation uh, piece and creating more resilient cities Um, It's something actually that's not that new to Greater Manchester in the northwest of England. Would you believe um, our first climate change um, plan in 1998 was actually an adaptation plan? It was actually an examination of what the impacts of climate change might be and how we could in some way prepare the region for them. So we've kind of, we've never taken our eye off the ball on this, actually. And I think it's important to say that it's not a, a, something that's sort of come late to the table i think for for manchester very specifically our our first climate change plan was in 2009 and adaptation was one of the five strands of it Um, so as a city we've we've been focused on this quite for quite some time not least because and i know it's often said um we're really conscious as a city that's really focused on social justice that the impacts of climate change are f- felt hardest by those who are least responsible for creating it. And so for, for a city that leans towards social justice and environmental justice, it's it's been a, a bit of a no-brainer for us to make sure that adaptation is quite close to the top of our agenda. When it comes to cities, I, I think that there's a huge uh, opportunity for leadership on climate adaptation, because cities have got so many levers they can pull um, and so i don't ever want to see it left behind um, as a sort of second uh, second tier subject after mitigation we've got spatial plans we have developer levies um, we have the co-benefits that can come from infrastructure spending and other things like that we have so many tools at our disposal to make adaptation happen Um, and to create and draft plans at a city scale um, that can help us um, adapt swiftly. So we do have a really important leadership role to take.
1: For sure. And you mentioned there that the city, as you say, has a long history here um, and climate justice comes naturally. But I wanted to get a feel on whether this approach could apply to other places, which might not be as far um, on that journey. And specifically, when we look at things like nature based solutions um, and resilience, we often ask, well, don't they need to be context specific? What about the local biodiversity? What does the local landscape Um, look look like so what are the opportunities here for replicating that elsewhere Um, and what are the sort of context specific considerations that you'd say need to be considered
2: well in a UK context um, when any city claims to be the birthplace of the industrial revolution um, several of our northern and midland cities start to roll up their sleeves and and get ready for a scrap over no we started the industrial revolution it wasn't you anyway just for the record we did and um, the, um, so, so for, for, for Manchester, so steeped in industry, our path towards both decarbonisation and climate resilience is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because we're on a journey from, you know, the world's first industrial city to becoming a, a sustainable city of the future. And I've often said that if Manchester and Greater Manchester can go on this journey, um, then no other city really anywhere in the world can say that this is too difficult. Um, because we 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 have all of that baggage of the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries and 20th century to deal with. So we um, have a huge opportunity to show that this is perfectly possible. Um, in terms of context specific adaptation, I think it's a really good point. There isn't any simple template that you can lay over a city and say, right, there's your adaptation plan off you pop. Um, and it's a bit like I know it's really sort of hackneyed. Um, uh piece of symbolism but uh green infrastructure nature-based solutions call it what you will ecosystem services we could track back through the jargon that's been used to describe this space but for me it's always like a swiss army knife it's got loads of little useful tools and cool gadgets tucked away inside of it and you probably need to use all of them at some point so the the things that nature-based solutions offer from you know dealing with flood risk through to uh creating shade reducing the heat island effect making people happier these are all things that um apply in almost every city in the world so the the broad suite of tools that nature can deliver for cities um are all appropriate you just have to dial them up or dial them down depending on which city you're in for greater manchester we've got um significant issues over flood risk for example because we've got a whole bunch of uh, really beautiful hills all around us, but there's a, a load of runoff that brings it into our towns and city centres. So I would probably put um, flood risk pretty high uh, on on my list, um, but all the other um, things that nature can deliver for a city uh, are appropriate to Greater Manchester as well. I think for those who's working on the future cities um getting our heads around nature-based solutions does require us to re-emphasise for people who just don't get it, that nature and the city belong together. Um, And that's sometimes not um, very apparent to key decision makers, those steering our economies, that I always loved the phrase that the economy is a wholly owned subset uh, of the environment. And so cities need, deserve, want, and must foster nature because the two can only work together.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much. And and you've mentioned there the need for yeah improvements in storytelling, as you've mentioned, um and in planning and in measuring metrics. But something else that we hear a lot about is is the funding gap um in nature-based solutions financing. And you've kindly sent me some notes about um the ways in which the partnership is working to innovate funding models. Um so I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about mm. that.
2: Yeah, in Greater Manchester we've got a few um really interesting Projects, initiatives, and partnerships going on. Um, we've got a big program called Ignition, uh, which is a, an EU funded program um, led by a whole bunch of city partners like the um, Lancashire Wildlife Trust, by the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, our brilliant community forest called City of Trees. And it's looking um, both at generically in nature-based solutions and the city and what what they can deliver and any innovative approaches to involving people in them, to, to innovate in planning. But one of the really critical bits of the mix is how do we introduce novel or innovative financing mechanisms to help? support and deliver nature-based solutions. Uh, and so that's one of the really critical parts of the Ignition project. Um, there's uh, a few of the highlights, I think probably are the setting up of Greater Manchester Environment Fund. Um, so if all the little pots are funding, they can't deliver as much as if they're aggregated together. So um, we're busy setting up a Greater Manchester Environment Fund um, to help deliver some of this. And then the, the kind of checklist of Different funding mechanisms that the project's looking at include uh, co-investment. So if you're you're spending on infrastructure anyway, uh, introduce nature-based solutions into that investment. Um, You know, don't spend twice. It's a bit of a no-brainer, but it's amazing how often people miss that. Um, Things like developer levies. Um, So if you get a permit to develop, you have to introduce some nature-based solutions into that mix. Um, Some of the more challenging ones... um, like endowments and green bonds that are becoming more popular and more talked about, we're looking at those, Uh, and even things like um, service charges for nature. So if you are lucky enough to be a recipient very directly of a nature-based solution, should you be helping to support that? Um, And that's been looked at for a number of years now, in particular looking at how parks can be funded in a more sustainable way. Uh, And then there's some of the ones that um, sort of ED's readers and listeners On the podcast we've heard about like things like uh, biodiversity net gain uh, and how can we use that to deliver more nature-based solutions so that whole uh, mix that's the kind of bigger longer list of innovative solutions and one thing that's coming out early um, in the ignition project is how can we blend them together Because if you take any one of those just on their own, sometimes they're just a little bit tricky to get off the ground. But if you get one, two, three or even four different funding streams and combine them, then you can deliver uh, an awful lot more. So those are the sorts of things we're looking at. The other thing that we've recently been involved in at a greater Manchester scale with also with Merseyside and with London and the southeast is looking at the future of environmental land management support elms as it's known uh, and one thing that a lot of people might have missed um, uh, as we move away from the common agricultural policy towards uh, pay public goods being uh, the focus of public support for managing land sustainably is that urban land now counts in elms. So what's been called urban elms is potentially a really interesting sp- space to look at uh, in particular more tree planting and how we can make good on the target we've got in greater manchester of uh, a new tree for every man, woman, and child living in the city region so i'd say urban elms is also one that we're really focused on and trying to work with
1: that's really fascinating because as much as we hear oh the projects aren't getting the funding we often hear from people that say well i've got the money and it's challenging to learn how to allocate it and from from working on innovations on ed yes we we see a lot of fancy te- technologies but it's also about looking at the systems and processes and innovating there
2: yeah oh i agree sir i mean you're absolutely spot on and also um, and we we're not there yet but bringing pulling all of uh all of the opportunities you have at a city scale together into an investable proposition for somebody who can release funding that's the kind of really key challenge and i don't think anybody's really cracked the code on that yet as a city or city region and uh, and to be honest that's one of our real um urgent requirements i think for greater manchester is just pull all this together so it's really coherent and somebody can invest in it and that to be honest that goes beyond nature-based solutions that applies as much to retrofit to decarbonizing our transport system um uh, through to energy supply so all of that really really makes a huge amount of sense you're dead right
1: A big thank you once again to Steve for his time and his insight there. He was such an interesting speaker and quite frankly, I'm not sure how he has enough hours in a day to deliver all the things that we've just mentioned. One of the key things I talked about with Steve just there is nature-based solutions Um, and this is what we chose as the theme for our afternoon of events this week along with climate adaptation. You can find out more about that and register to watch On Demand for free at ed.net slash webinars. That's ed.net slash webinars. We had a great speaker lineup for that, including representatives from Unilever, Grosner, the FAIR initiative and many more. So please do check it out. I'm going to bring part one of this podcast to a close now maybe go and grab a coffee or go enjoy some nature and then join me in part two for a look at the global transition to net zero we'll be looking at that through the lens of a sector that will play a key role metals minerals and mining (music) Hello and welcome back to the second half of this episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast, our special edition for our Countdown to COP26 week. After looking at action on a local scale in part one and also taking a look at national policy, we're zooming out for part two to focus on the global net zero transition. This is of course a vast topic and we'd be here all day if we were trying to cover all facets of this So we're going to look through the lens of a sector which has historically contributed to global emissions significantly and is now acutely exposed to physical climate risks. But it's also a sector which will have to expand to accelerate decarbonisation in the world's energy sectors. Um, What I'm talking about here is metals, materials and mining. I'm sure we've all seen the headlines about how companies in this sector in places like Australia and the US have in the past pushed back against the Paris Agreement. Um, and I'm sure we're also well aware of the need to scale this sector if we are to adopt a level of technologies like wind turbines, solar panels, battery storage arrays and electric vehicles that we need. With all of this in mind, this is obviously a crucial topic for global climate action. So I was happy to virtually sit down with Conrad Van Spansky from Boston Consulting Group. Conrad is a veritable font of knowledge on this topic. He led the group's industrial goods practice in the UK and the Benelux region for five years and is now their global lead for strategy, value creation and ecosystem integration in metals and mining. So without further ado, let's play that interview with Conrad in full. Well, welcome to the podcast, Conrad. It's a delight to have you. How are you?
3: Very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Sarah
1: no and it's good to have you as well i can't believe that i've I've just discovered um off of recording that conrad is literally about a 15 minute drive for me and we really could have met up and done this in person um but we're on teams today so thank you so much for taking taking the time to come on this podcast which is yeah, specifically just taking a temperature check two months out from um cop 26 and i thought it'd be great to Bring in this piece about um about yeah, climate, metals, and mining, something we see so much of about um about in the headlines. Um I think to get a starting point, I think um, it'd be good, I think, to start with the recent IPCC report. We've seen so much there. We've done our own takeaway about that, what that means for, for businesses. But I'd love to start by getting your thoughts on the reports and and specifically what you think the takeaways there were for, for that mining sector.
3: Certainly. Um, so if, if anyone in business or in the mining industry had any illusion or perception that there could be a the reasonable doubt about the human influence of uh, global warming and the likelihood of climate change having a material impact on, on our lives and on the mining industry, then that report certainly did away with that. So clearly the industry um, will be hugely affected both in positive and negative ways. We'll talk about that in the next half an hour. Um, essentially the industry has a dilemma or the fundamental reaction to it is, is twofold. On, on the one hand, Right, We, we need um, the, the mining sector uh, to produce the materials that we need to make the transition. We need the copper, we need the aluminium, we need the nickel, we need the lithium in almost unprecedented quantities. On the other hand, the mining industry and mineral production contributes four to seven of global greenhouse emissions. So the industry faces the challenge of, of how do we bring these emissions down to zero as quickly as we possibly can. But on the other hand, not undermining the ability of the industry to produce the materials, and that includes recycling, by the way, um, that are are needed for wind farms, for solar installations, for, for batteries, for transmission lines, for electrifications, for the industrial installations to capture CO2 and so on so the the key imperatives if you want uh, if you want to for the, for the mining industry really are are fourfold. One is they need to adapt to changes in demand right? if you are in coal, if you are in platinum in palladium materials used in catalytic converters for, for internal combustion engine cars, demand will go down. no question. Um, If you are in metallurgical coal needed for steel making, demand will also go down a little bit slower because we don't yet have another way of making steel on an industrial scale without metallurgical coal. Um, But if you are in copper, aluminum, nickel, lithium, potentially uranium, all these materials will be needed in, in much larger quantities than before. And so you need to think about how this transition will impact your portfolio. What will essentially become worthless coal mines? Um, what do you need more of? Copper is not that easy to find in, high, in good quality and uh, stable jurisdiction. So you need to play, plan long-term about how you shift your portfolio more in line with future demand. But the challenge is that you actually don't know yet quite whether future batteries will use cobalt, for instance. Will they be nickel-based? Or will other technologies come up? So you need to, as a mining industry, really create a, first of all, think through scenarios, and then create a almost portfolio of commodities that you want to be in, um, that you believe in current trajectories will increase in demand. But uh, you also need to need to hedge your, hedge your bets there a little bit. Um, you also need to think through technologies, right? um, the, what what battery technology will come, what technology may be there to take out carbon uh, emissions from aluminium smelting, what technologies may win in terms of, of steel production and so on. So that's the demand side. Right? Then you need to decarbonize your operations and, and make them resilient. Climate change is not something that's happening in the future. Climate change is happening now. Right? so. You need to think about um, essentially a uh, number of leaders, right? Making them more energy efficient. Yes, we've we've done that for for years. Energy costs typically, and you t- try to avoid cost, but we need to go faster there. We need to switch fuels from coal to biomass, from bio, from gas to electricity, from to or, or to solar uh, if the, if the processes allow allow that renewable power replace contracts that we have with coal-fired power stations, with renewable power stations, as as some miners already do, including using hydrogen, preferably green hydrogen, um, produced by solar energy through electrolysis for our operations. We need to capture methane emissions from underground mines, um, and and we need to capture the the carbon. So decarbonizing is a huge uh, agenda, needs to be driven quickly. But as I said, climate change is happening now, so we already have impacts today for instance, water scarcity. Um, We need to build desalination plants, again, hopefully driven with solar energy to not use scarce water resources in the sometimes very arid already areas where the mines are based today. Um, We need to um, make our assets resilient to flooding. Um, When you are in Western Australia and a big iron ore producer, you are used to already having cyclones hit your ports and disrupt your operations, well, guess what? Those are getting, if not necessarily more frequent, but more severe and impact greater areas. Um, Heat temperatures are going up. What does that do to people having to work in these circumstances, Um, railroad lines being deformed in the heat and so on? So you need to decarbonize and make your operations more resilient. The third um, aspect of what you need to do now is attract, continue to attract the capital to invest. Right? And that is increasingly linked closely to your, as a company, performance of the, on on environmentally social uh, and, and governance, uh, sustainability and governance performance, particularly on, on emissions. So we at BCG, we looked at a number of companies over the last years and classified them according to their emissions performance and saw that the multiple, the price multiple of how these companies are valued in the market is actually increasingly, Tied to how they perform on carbon emissions. So companies that have started to reduce their emissions earlier have valuations that are on average about 20% higher than companies or their peers um, who perform in the bottom quartile on on that metric. And then fourth, you need to continue to gain the support of all the stakeholders for what you're doing as a as a mining and metals industry. So. And that uh, is, it means you have to sort of enroll not only your employees, but also your communities, your governments, your customers in this dual uh, agenda that you're driving, decarbonizing, reducing the impact, but at the same time, focusing on the, on the materials that we need in increasing quantities to making the transition actually happen. Great. I think that's a
1: really good overview and you've answered a few of my questions already, <laughs> I think. Um, but yeah, this is why metals and mining is so interesting to me in the climate space, because it's not only acutely you know, exposed to risks, um, it's, it's also contributing to emissions. But at the same time, there is that positive economic impact that it's seeing from the low carbon transition from increasing demand. And I wanted to focus on that. Um, for a moment so we've seen a lot about this in the headlines in in recent times about how the net zero transition um, means we're going to need so much more copper so much more lithium um, and and so on um, and you've talked about the things that companies need to be aware of and seriously consider um, with with that in mind but are you seeing this as how the conversation is being framed because I personally sometimes see some fear mongering so oh this is why we shouldn't go all in in the low carbon transition because it's unsustainable from a materials perspective.
3: Well the the mining and metals industry has a unique ability to respond to demand signals right it is a uh, it is all about uh, having having a positive outlook on the demand and price levels for a commodity that determines which deposits or which operations become feasible in the future so when you look back to the uh, super cycle driven by fast growing chinese demand uh, about uh, 15 20 years ago when it started right that was all driven by demand growing faster than supply and ore prices went to two hundred dollars a ton and copper went to way above uh, above ten thousand dollars a ton and so on and nickel went to twenty thousand and so on um, well and people believe that would be the new normal well guess what the industry catches up and brings in new uh, supply and new operations and and before marginal operations or marginal deposits and, and lower price levels now become suddenly viable and are being brought into production and people invest and guess what? Supply catches up and the inevitable happens when when the demand growth slowed down and supply finally caught up. But five or 10 years later, you had from, say, about 2013 to 2016, a period of of continuously declining prices, pretty precipitously so. Um, And uh, so also in in this case, um, I think the, the the increase in price levels for, say, battery uh, electric materials will do two things. They will stimulate the mining industry to bring in new uh, production, and they will, uh, and, and of equal importance, stimulate innovation on the side of the, in this case, example, battery manufacturers to develop new technologies and new processes that use less of these now very expensive materials. And we're already seeing that with, with cobalt, uh, which is not only expensive, but also largely produced in the Democratic Republic of, of, of Congo in often very circumspect circumstances. Right? You, you have uh, wildcat miners, you may have child labor, you, may have, you certainly have a disregard of environmental health and safety regulations there. And, and so uh, battery manufacturers have for some time now tried to engineer the, co- the cobalt out of the battery. And that was already succeeding, so Tesla is already selling some of their top-end cars without the cobalt in the battery. And so equally, we'll, we'll, we'll see when when demand goes too high, supply can't keep up and prices go through the roof. I don't think that's not an argument for, for not doing the, the energy transition. That is an argument for, and the economic stimulus works in that way, for innovation and for, for increasing supply.
1: Great. And you mentioned there some of the different technologies and considerations that need to be made. So it's pretty obvious that there's no one single answer to a green or net zero or resource efficient um, mining sector. But I wanted to get your view on a little bit more detail about this sort of jigsaw um, of solutions that, that we're getting. So in terms of what sort of solutions are likely to play the biggest role in Um, in resource improvements so is that going to be alternative materials or recycling do you think Um, and then on on decarbonization what are some of the the biggest technologies that we're we're looking at
3: so let's start with uh with decarbonization right the in the metals and mining space the, the the largest amount of emission essentially comes from one steel production and secondly um, aluminium smelting right? uh, let's, let's look at steel production a moment uh, closer. Essentially two ways of, of producing steel today. one is electric arc furnaces which uses um, scrap steel essentially largely as an input um, and and doesn't produce as much co2 per ton of steel produced uh, depending on the on the electricity source you use as the 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 primary route which is reducing iron ore through metallurgical coal in a blast oxygen furnace Um, and uh, that by the by the very nature of the process you have coal which attracts the oxygen from the iron ore and you're left with co2 and 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 iron um, in the a, in a, in a simplest level, right? And, and and how do we? So, we need for that, we need a fundamental new process, right? The, the end vision is we would use hydrogen as the reduction agent. So, we would use hydrogen plus iron ore, makes water plus, plus iron. And the question is, where does the hydrogen come from? Um, hopefully, it is produced with uh, solar powered electrolysis, again, uh, emission free. Um, there are pilot plants already doing that today in, in, in Sweden, and uh, in fact, there was an article recently where already the, the first zero carbon steel is now being sold to, I think it was Volvo in Sweden, in very minuscule quantities. So that technology is is known. It is by far not, not ready to be commercialized. It is is very expensive. There's not enough hydrogen supply there and, and, and so on. So there, the industry needs to think about a few steps in between. Will we use um, hydrogen produced from natural gas first, because that already gives me less CO2 emissions than when I use met coal. Um, what other can I can I grow the electric arc furnace route really much more rapidly and and produce materials that are currently only can produce from the blast furnace, now with an electric arc furnace and use renewable power to to go that way. So there are a number of 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 uh, uh, routes under consideration underway. But but because it is at the core of the steel process chemistry, it is very hard to decarbonize, actually. Aluminium is a lot easier. Aluminium is produced in in electrolytic cells and the majority of the carbon emissions, up to up to 80 percent of uh, of emissions uh, produced in the in the uh, aluminium value chain, come from the power that is used to power from the power generation that is used to power these electrolytic cells. So if you are a coal-fired aluminium smelter, which by the way, 60% of the world's um, aluminium production is coal-fired, over half of of global production in China, 90% coal-fired, um, then emissions are very high, up to 15, 16 tons of CO2 per ton of per ton of aluminium. You don't need to change the electrolytic electric smelting process. All you need to change is the power source. So instead of using coal-fired power, I use a hydropower station. And I immediately reduce the uh, emissions intensity to about four tons of CO2, which are direct scope one emissions in the process. I'll come to that in a moment. So for aluminium, it's relatively easy. No technological change requires only shift in power source, which is, of course, for someone in China or India, um, or South Africa, easier said than done because they are, that's the primary power source they, they currently utilize and, and, and they're very limited in, in, in what they have in terms of, of, uh, of hydropower. Um, you can also, there's also technologies being developed by Rio Tinto and Alcoa in a, in a joint venture called Elysis, um, which is called inert anode technology which also reduces the primary emissions in the aluminium smelting process that takes out another two or three tons of co2 per, per ton of aluminium and the remaining that is is created during the mining and refining operations and other stages of the value chain so these are the two aluminium and and uh, and, and steel that we need to address and then you get then you go to the other processes like copper smelting uh, nickel smelting uh, and so on um, which are um, today um, uh, powered with with largely with uh, with natural gas, um, which already is relatively low CO two, and I think there we will probably think have to think about carbon capture and and storage uh, because we just need the heat and and we can't uh, create that yet uh, purely electrically. Your first question recycling will will play a significant role absolutely, um, and it already it's not that we that we're not recycling. I mean just to for, uh, for you as an order of magnitude today, all the aluminium we use, about a third of that comes from recycled aluminium already. Aluminium is infinitely recyclable, 70% of all aluminium ever produced is still in use today. Um, and that one third may well increase to about 50% in, in about 20 years time. Most aggressive and recent um, projections from the International Aluminium Institute and may go further than that. In steel it's a little bit less um, the recycling quota because steel iron oxidizes and so wastes away during usage which aluminium does not. Um, Clearly recycling has to has to grow. Will we ever be able in the relative near term or medium term to live purely off recycled material? I don't think so because the the volume of material that is available for recycling is essentially equal minus wastage to the material that we used, say, 20 years ago. Because aluminium steel, copper wire goes into a car, it goes into a building, that takes about 20 years to come back or to come to its end of life and we can recycle it. Some usages are way quicker. The aluminium beverage can, the Coca-Cola that you buy today was lost on the shelf six weeks ago. That can go around very quickly. Um, but the the big volume right, um, that that we need to recycling um, is 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 in is in longer life applications, and aluminium as a, as a as a rough indication steel is not not too, too different. Its usage grows by three to four percent a year. So the aluminium we we built into cars and buildings twenty years ago was about half uh, or a third of what we what we need now a year and therefore as long as we keep using more materials uh, the point at which we can live off purely recycled materials is 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 far 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 or is impossible to reach we essentially need to come to a point where we don't use more aluminium next year than we did this year or more steel more copper um, can that point be reached absolutely yes with a stagnating uh, ultimately stagnating, uh, hopefully, a uh, population in the in, in the world, uh, maybe that point will will be reached at some point, um, but it's not, it's not in the next 20, 50, 100 years.
1: That makes complete sense. Um, and Conrad, I know our time is nearly running out, but I did want to briefly touch on something a little broader than just this deep look at the mining impact of net zero that we've been going through um, because I know that you also have a lot of expertise in joint ventures and strategic alliances and we're speaking ahead of COP26 Um, and in preparation for that I've seen so many of these kind of ventures and alliances launching whether that's in the UK, other geographies or internationally um, and whether that's sector specific or on a specific technology. Um, so I'd, I'd like to touch on just to finish up um, your top tips, really. So how organisations um, can make sure these ventures and alliances succeed, um, that after they succeed in doing like momentum building and awareness raising ahead of COP, that they actually deliver, for example, the carbon reduction or the, the resource benefits that we we desperately need, because we've seen the IPCC report and, and we need those results.
3: Absolutely, and, and uh, thanks for asking about it, which is a really interesting field. There is indeed a, a growing number of alliances with a climate focus uh, now being established. And uh, with a few colleagues, I'm currently actually looking into these uh, corporate-led sustainability alliances. We started by, by collecting data about, uh, uh, about 50 of, of those alliances, of which actually, more than 20 have been founded in the last five years. And the oldest one go back sort of sort of more than 20 years. So we definitely see a growing frequency of these alliances being being formed. Um, we are seeing them increasingly focusing on not just um, advocacy or raising awareness, but actually on raising or setting new industry standards. Sort of about 75% of the alliances are doing that. Um, 40% of those doing sort of influencing and shaping regulations, and 36, a good third, uh, work to increase transparency. And then there are other, other agendas as well. So looking at these about 50 alliances that we have analyzed, there are a few success patterns emerging. One is start with players that are essential to the, to the solution. Right, um, You need to gather, ideally, uh, market players with a, with a strong market share with high commitment, with strong innovation capability, and everybody needs to be around the table who needs to contribute to solving the problem. So take the maersk Miller mckinney Center for Zero Carbon Shipping that brings together mining companies, shipping companies, fuel companies, banks, uh, engine companies, uh, all needed to decarbonize the shipping uh, value chain. So the second factor is uh, for that we see the, the Better better alliances doing is they articulate very clearly their public commitments and have a strategic plan um, with with robust sort of governance and accountability measures. I.e., they publish repeatedly of how they're progressing towards their targets um, and uh, and invite independent uh, bodies to to verify these targets. Science-based targets initiative, for instance, is is an example of that with its 800 and more members. um, Creating transparency through sort of a standardized data sharing, um, you want to create competition. You want to uh, share learning, right? The International Council for Mining and Metals, as an example, brings together about 28 of the world's largest mining and metal firms, mining mining and metal companies. And uh, speaking with, with their CEO, Tom Butler, uh, recently, he told me that um, creating a healthy competition around the table was actually part of the ICMM's agenda. As soon as they aligned on how you measure emissions, how you measure impact on communities, how you measure environmental impact, um, companies started to, to compete against each other and uh, striving for, for, for better performance because that was important for their communities, for their investors, for their for their employees. Right. And, and lastly, I would say, the, uh, as, as an alliance, you really need to enable or, or really collectively build innovative solutions. Right? It's not just about talking or, or measuring or publicizing what you're doing. It's also really solving the problem. Right? Um, another example from the mining industry, uh, BHP, Vale, Rio Tinto, and, and Ostmine, which is an Australian uh, mining NGO, uh, came recently together to create what they call the Charge On Innovation Challenge, uh, and that is a is a challenge they pose to basically the supplier base, but irrespective of whether that is mining suppliers or others, to help them <clears throat> solve the uh, the challenge of decarbonizing mining trucks. You have these enormous Caterpillar trucks uh, in in mines they are all diesel operated today, uh, and uh, transforming them into electric vehicles and uh, would take an enormous amount of carbon out of the mining operations Um, but it's not easy these are not your usual trucks they are way bigger way heavier they normally run 24 7 and in some mines so when do you charge them Um, that that problem needs to be solved and again an alliance of of strong players coming together who have market power to implement the solution then at scale is something that, that these alliances uh, should increasingly focus on and, and, and do. Um, but all of that will, will, will take some time. So in the alliances we looked into um, and we classified them into whether they are largely advocating or whether they have the potential to address the root cause or the way, whether they're actually addressing root causes at scale of those that do the latter, right, really taking driving decarbonization forwards only um 30 uh, percent were found in the last 10 years so you need quite some, some runway to, to to get to that um until you really make an impact but we need we need more of that than we need it faster
1: of course well there's there's a the closing message i think start now
3: <laughs> absolutely
1: a big final thank you to conrad our third and final guest for this episode Um, And just like that, it's a wrap for our COP26 Focus Week. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and um, if you have, I really hope you have, um, you can find all of the other content that has been mentioned throughout this episode at ed.net forward slash COP26. That's ed.net forward slash COP26. Some resources that will be particularly helpful are our COP26 Primer Reports. So these are a series of downloadable reports each taking a look at the UK COP unit's five chosen themes for the conference. So taking global stock of progress, looking at remaining gaps and some of the best practice initiatives that are underway to close them. So the topics we've covered here are clean energy, clean transport, nature-based solutions, adaptation and finance. We've also just uploaded an updated version of our ED Explains COP26 for Business Report, which does what it says on the tin, answering all of your FAQs about the conference. You can access all of these resources at ed.net forward slash downloads. That's ed.net forward slash downloads. But for now, we're just about out of time. And that's not just because we've had all of our guests and published all of our other content for the week but because I really need a coffee before I can think any more about climate at this point. Um, and I'm sure it'll be the same for many of you. So thank you so much for joining us for this episode and for this week. If you've enjoyed listening, you can subscribe to the Edie podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. And we'll be back again in a few weeks with a new episode. Until then, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>